You're listening to a special edition of Midori House, first broadcast on the 1st of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Welcome to a special edition of Midori House, showcasing the very best of our print media programme, The Stack. Today we're looking back at a Stack episode which we first broadcast in September. We were live at the London Art Book Fair at the Whitechapel Gallery. Let's take a look back, have a listen back, and I hope you enjoy. This week we're taking the stack out on the road and heading to the Whitechapel Gallery, home of the 2018 London Art Book Fair. We'll be hearing from the gallery director, catching up with some old stack friends and also hopefully making some new ones amongst the gathering of publishers, magazine editors and bibliophiles assembled there. The wonderful worlds of art, books and magazines collide in a flurry of paper and print today on the stack. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis with me, Tom Edwards. Now, this week, the Stack team ventured out of Marlebone and pitched its metaphorical tent at the Whitechapel Gallery in London's East End to speak to many of the exhibitors there for the London Art Book Fair. The fair's open to the public until Sunday, so if you're in or near London, it's definitely worth paying a visit. Well, joining me as the Stack hit the road, and now... Here in studio as well is the programme's producer, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And uh, Fernando, London Art Book Fair, absolutely brilliant. We had lots of fun there, met all sorts of people. Uh, it's an event which I guess shares passions with this programme. Absolutely. And I love to see how the art book world is doing so well. Uh, and it's interesting, too, even when you go to a major bookshop, you know, even if you go to Foils here in London, for example, it is there's, you know, a huge dedicated session, you know, to those type of books. And I think they kind of influence uh, magazines in a way and vice versa. So I think it's a it's a, two very similar worlds, but at the same time, quite different. Some, some one of our guests, Mark Valley, which we'll hear uh, in a minute or two, I I mean, he did have some opinions on that, but it was it was a very interesting fair to be on. Uh, absolutely. And I think one of the interesting uh, things to observe is, you know, why the Whitechapel Gallery and how do spaces more used to displaying contemporary art uh, display contemporary art book publishing and magazines and all the rest? Uh, we knew a woman who would know exactly how that all worked. And that was the Whitechapel Gallery's director, Ivona Blaswick. Let's hear from her first. We launched this fair actually some years ago, about 10 years ago, because we are a publishing house as well as being a gallery and because the dissemination of artists' work after an exhibition ends depends entirely on a catalogue, for example. And in fact, the art world and publishing have always gone hand in hand. So on one side, conventional art history depends on reproducing works of art that may be all over the world. But to be able to look at them until the birth of the internet, we had to have books. And they were the main source of research, study and discourse about the work of the past. With contemporary art, of course, we can see it in real time and space. And increasingly, we can also see it online. 
But that access is transitory. It's a very crowded space, actually, the digital platform. And to connect interpretation with image can be quite tricky. So we're very committed to the concept of the book as having a life in the 21st century. And this art fair is a way of celebrating that. It's also a way of celebrating the wider ecosystem of the art world. Because there are all sorts of publishers out there. There are other people like us. We're a public gallery. And there are many other public galleries around the world that produce catalogues for all their exhibitions. And that's the way to look at their own histories and also to look at something that has already passed. So it's supporting these activities. It's making them visible in London, currently, in my view, the capital of the art world. And we have colleagues from across the country and around the world. There are also little micro-publishing presses, uh, which may be collectives of artists or curators or thinkers who want to disseminate their ideas in the form of printed matter, in the form of an object. There are some great commercial galleries who also publish their exhibitions or their artists. Again, that's very much tied up with the market, that you want to be able to produce something which is a record of a work of art, which may then go into a private collection. It may never be seen again, so that's the record. And in all of this, the one thing that is consistent is the idea of time. Last year, there was a meeting at the National Library of Congress in Washington, and the chief librarian shared with us the fact that she is being deluged with requests from libraries across America, asking for a protocol of what to do about downloading digital data because technologies keep moving. So everything that was once on a microfilm is now obsolete. Everything that was now on then went to a floppy disk. So these things are all obsolete. And so they keep having to translate and transfer this digital data on and on as everything moves on. Now we're in a cloud, but that's going to go soon. And the other thing is that this kind of storage, which looks virtual, is not. It requires huge amounts of energy. If you think about outside the outskirts of Paris, there are warehouses full of computers. The cloud is not a cloud. It is lots and lots of hardware. So the librarians were asking the librarian, what should we do about translating it to the next generation of technologies? And she sends out one email to everybody, and it just has three words on it. Print it out. Because print and paper is the most stable of all technologies. This can last a thousand years, but a hard drive, ten at the most. So there is also something about making public the need for print and celebrating it. Yvonne Blaswick from the Whitechapel Gallery. And you can actually hear more of the chat I had uh, with Yvonne from our little radio gantry at the Whitechapel Gallery on the Monocle Daily, which aired last night. Uh, You can find that at the website. Um, Let's move on. Faye, you mentioned at the top of the programme about uh, Stack regular uh, Mark Valley, a good friend of ours. He's head of art at Lawrence King Publishers. And he was telling you, this was really interesting, exactly as you talked about, about, you know, whether 
books and magazines are, I suppose, happy bedfellows. And he had some interesting insights. I started Magman. I started Elephant as well, whereas Lawrence King Publishing has been established for much longer. So your role becomes quite different. It's quite a funny way of approaching something when you're coming from outside and you're in a way learning a very complex business because a publishing business is quite a complex thing. I actually myself didn't realize how complex book publishing could be before I actually started doing it. Whereas magazine publishing is quite complex, but I find it a bit less complex, whereas retail is quite simple. Many things that you need to do well, but you, you put things on the shelves and people buy them. Whereas the income streams and the planning, and it is really quite different in book publishing. Well, and I'm sure, you know, being the owner of a shop as well, you kind of know what people are interested in as well. So I'm sure this helped you a little bit at your job at Lawrence King. Yes, it's something I actually miss. And I try to go over the weekends to Magma to actually get a feel for how people are buying things. Because every two or three years, you get these phenomenal shifts in the market where suddenly people were really interested in this and then they suddenly don't want to see it anymore. They're interested in something else. It is hugely useful. Yeah, I wish I actually could do it more often. And now you, you, know, you publish art books. How would you compare art books to the world of magazines? Because there, there, there are quite a few similarities. How do those two worlds live together? Yes, I don't think that they quite live together. One of the things I was, always found quite fascinating at Magma is that we had magazine customers and book customers. And they were not quite the same people. There are people who prefer magazines, the people who prefer books. I myself probably would define myself more as a book person by nature. But in terms of actually publishing, then they are really completely different. If you're publishing a magazine, you're thinking about things that people will enjoy reading one page about or two pages. You think, oh, people who really want to read two pages about this coffee or about this location. Yes, two pages sounds great and people will read that. Now, to get people to read 150 pages about something, you're talking about a different type of interest. When you're publishing magazines, you're really thinking about things that people are interested in, in general. They walk down the street and they think, oh, I'd really like to learn about that shop, or I'd really like to learn about motorbikes. Whereas when you're publishing books, you're thinking something that people really need to have. They're like, I really want to build a motorbike, so I need a manual to tell me how to build it. Or I really need to learn how to do merchandising in my shop, so I need a book to teach me that. So books have a... You really have to think them out completely different. It's no longer about what you fancy or find interesting. It's more about what organically will work in the market that people really need. Well, that's a fascinating sight about those two worlds. And, you know, and, and Lawrence King, which sort of books have you been commissioning lately? Well, I wish we had one type of book we publish. I think we're, we're on the border at Lawrence King between being, we're probably as big as an independent can be. And when you grow, you get to a stage where, so say if you're a small niche book publisher, you publish a book, it will sell four or 5,000 copies, and you can make a good living out of that. The more you grow, the more copies you have to sell of the books you publish. And we're at a stage where we're almost a mainstream publisher, and so it gets a lot harder to find books that actually can sell at, in much larger numbers. And success has come in all forms and shapes. So, for example, last year we published a book called The Short Story of Art, 
And that did exactly what it said on the tin. It was just the shortest story of art you could find in the market. And that was a surprising success. It sold very well. Or before that, we had a book that again did exactly what it said on the cover, which it was a book called, that was published maybe three years ago. It was called Read This If You Want to Take Great Photographs. And it obviously hit on this social phenomena of people having iPhones, everyone suddenly being able to take really good photographs. And that created a whole line of books on photography for us, which are still being very successful. And we're still publishing quite a lot in that area. So we publish in art, we publish in photography, we publish in fashion, architecture, design, and anything that seems kind of interesting. So for example, this season, we're also publishing a book on the phenomenal drag queens. And the fact that with RuPaul's Drag Race, that's become such a massive thing. It really can vary quite a lot. Very interesting, Fernando. Are you a, are you a book or a magazine person? I don't know. Do you, can you split your loyalties that way? Very much of a magazine person. <laughs> I do love books. You know, it's not that I'm anti-books. Of course not. But magazines are, you know, it's my soft spot. <laughs> uh, the passion of many who appear on this program, of course. Uh, interesting, though. One of the biggest uh, art book publishers to appear uh, at the London Art Book Fair in this iteration is David Zwerner Books. And we tracked down the managing director, Adoro Globus. Uh, she had lots of interesting insights about the state of the business and about how, I don't know, I guess, I guess how it fits into the whole world of coverage and understanding of contemporary arts. Let's hear what Adoro Globus had to say. We do four to six art book fairs a year internationally, and we find it's an amazing opportunity for us to actually speak to our customers, see how people interact with a book. You learn a lot from how people first pick up a book. They usually turn it over, look at the back first, and then land somewhere in the middle, which is completely different from how we design and think of making a book. And so that kind of plays into a little bit of us understanding how they're used and how they're first approached. Um, but for the most part, it's really nice to have the people who are making the books and working on the books standing here and talking about them because we, we live them and we're all very proud of them. And can you talk to us a bit about how the book publishing part of the Zwerner sort of operation fits into the overall? Because I guess you'll have gallery visitors or collectors with whom you have very close working relationships. And then there's a kind of wider public, maybe they're quite engaged with, say, the contemporary art space. But I always find it interesting, I wonder whether the publishing operation, it provides a really interesting other platform, I guess, doesn't it, to, to speak to people. Is, is there a, I don't know, an opening up of the sort of business that the gallery does, that books can do in a way? Is it kind of a different sort of outreach almost than other forms of communication? Absolutely. I think books actually go a lot further than exhibitions and they have many different life forms. So they might have an initial life form within the gallery's walls to promote an exhibition. And then you're also creating these books to appeal to everyday art visitors and to promote the artists further and further. An exhibition might only be in New York, but the book can make it to China. So it's it's a really nice way to promote our artists, to share our artists, to work with really talented writers, which you wouldn't really be able to do outside of making a book. We're working with a lot of fiction writers as well, so kind of trying to find different ways of approaching the artwork that's sort of outside of the traditional gallery walls. And so a lot of our books are gallery 
focused or they start with something that's happened at the gallery or they start with an exhibition and then they take on another life. So we try to make sure that they appeal to as many types of people as possible. And then we're also making books that have nothing to do (laughs) with the gallery operation. We're just coming out with a book called What It Means to Write About Art and it's interviews with art critics. And it's a really fantastic, very open book of interviews. And so that will have an appeal to students. It will have an appeal to gallery goers, anyone who's interested in writing in general. And what about, obviously you touched already upon the different markets. You know, you talked about the Chinese market, whatever it might be. Do you have to be very mindful of not necessarily, you know, what sells where, though I guess that's, you know, come down to the, the, the brass tacks at the end. Is there a sort of a international language I don't know people talk about art being truly international and it can work across any border is that the same with publishing is it very different do you have to balance up the operation are there conflicting demands whether it's on your time or on the kinds of things people want to see in different markets how how does that international element work it's a good question I mean one of the benefits of working with the sort of 60 65 artists and estates that we work with at David Zwerner is that they're exhibiting all over the world all over the all the time some of them for lack of better word are brand names so you don't even have to worry about whether it's going to translate in different marketplaces um, our books are mostly English language only so we do have that consideration but we, we find they sell all over the world We've just come out with our first bilingual series. So we have a series that's centered around our Hong Kong program. And we have um, an English language version and then an English Chinese bilingual version. So we're sort of testing out sort of other languages at the moment. And then we also kind of do the opposite there. We have a series called the Ekphrasis series, which looks at out of print or rarely published texts, and we're translating those into English. So we're trying to make them available to the English-speaking market. That was Doro Globus from David Zwerner Books. Um, Fernando, you said your heart is with magazines, despite the powerful testimony we've been hearing. Uh, and you spoke to somebody who's involved in, a, I guess, a relatively recent addition to the, the global ranks of magazines, but a title which has really made a big impression. Absolutely. Their latest issue was all about beauty. We're talking here about Lady Beard magazine, which is a feminist title. And and, and it's interesting, Tom, because I spoke uh, to one of the editors, Saif O'Sullivan. Uh, it was interesting how, uh, you know, the mainstream women's media as well, it's kind of changing slowly, but I could notice that even she was quite positive about it. She, was, she mentioned some changes at the British Vogue, for example, and other more mainstream titles. But Lady Beard, I think, most of all, is a thing of beauty. I mean, if you like good design, good articles, it's certainly a magazine to be read. And I discussed with her, you know, a little bit more about the title. The impetus behind Ladybeard is quite similar at the, in the root of it to a lot of feminist magazines. We read a lot of non-feminist but women's media when we were growing up and it had a very big influence on our attitudes to ourselves and other women and our relationships. And then... We wanted to create something that took what we loved and coveted about, I think, titles like Vogue and um, all the big, like, beefy magazines that are so beautiful and covetable. But in that format, we wanted to create something that was radical and artistic and dissected the themes that 
we thought were the most commonly covered or underrepresented. So we've done three issues. Our first issue was sex, which came out in 2015. And then we had mind, which was 2016. And our most recent issue came out in April this year, 2018. And that was beauty. And it's interesting, I was, I was already asking, so when is the, the next issue coming out? But you said, you know, the way you work, so you don't have like a specific date, but how, how do you plan the next issue? Do you have like a, a limit until you publish or how does um, that work? Well, we roughly base it around the length of our first issue, which was about 160 pages. Part of our ethos is that we don't have any adverts because it's a bad business move. I will say that. I wouldn't encourage it necessarily, but from a political standpoint, especially how prevalent advertising and how influential corruptive advertising was on us as children and teenagers, we didn't want that as part of it. And it also doesn't really work with how we structure the magazine. So our steps are quite unconventional. We come up with a theme. So let's take beauty. We came up with a theme. We brainstormed it. We scraped every area that we could within that theme and things that we hadn't seen done because we want to push the boundaries of what beauty can mean in a feminist and in a women's media sense. And then we go out and we start to work on those themes. We reach out to artists, we do profiles, we interview, and we try and profile voices that are more frequently now, I'm happy to say, more frequently uplifted in women's media, but still are quite underrepresented. As editors, we find these people and we platform their voices as opposed to having our own voices in it. I was going to ask, when you look at other women's publications, I mean, do you see any change? I mean, because, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the industry about, you know, more diversity, you know, talk about different people that were featured in those type of magazines. Do you see change or do you think this is kind of just a perfunctory thing that the industry is doing? There is a big shift. There's been a huge change. We started working on the first issue in 2014. There's been a huge change in the first four years. I mean, the digital space has opened up a lot of that. I think that print exists in a different sphere. I think it has different function and I think it faces different challenges because, I mean, yesterday, Reveal, which is technically, I mean, it is a woman's title, it was shut. The debrief swallowed Grazia. There are other magazines that have kind of, I think, look as well. So the mainstream print titles, they are struggling, but online it is thriving. There are lots of places that I think do it exceptionally well. I work for one of them. Refinery29 is fantastic for it. Broadly is very good. The debrief, while it still existed, I mean, rest in peace. I do miss it. It was very funny. That was Cyber Sullivan, one of the editors of Ladybeard magazine. They are very busy people, aren't they, Fernando? They are full, indeed. Full of admiration for their work <laughs> and how they do it. Uh, we have a very busy show today. On with our interviews. Lots going on at the London Art Book Fair. Uh, a publisher next, Faye, that uh, the Monocle team is hugely enthusiastic about. Indeed, we've spoken to before on, perhaps on this programme, but certainly across our others. And that's uh, the publisher Fitzcarraldo, uh, Jacques Testard, of course, uh, behind that one. He was busy on the on the sort of main floor, getting their uh, stand uh, prepared. And even though he was busy, he kindly agreed to take a moment or two out to speak to us. So uh, I put some questions his way. We did London Art Book Fair four years ago when I just launched Fitzgeraldo. And it was our first ever book fair and we had two books to peddle because that's as many books as we'd published at that point. 
and uh, then there was you know obviously the, the break London Art Book Fair I think took a two year break and so it was very exciting to see that it was starting again and it's very nice to be back and to have 38 books to show this time but you know more broadly speaking doing book fairs is a very important part of our program we try to do as many events as possible because it's a way of reaching audiences for our books and also I think we're one of those rare kind of literary publishers that has a foot in or at least a big interest in the art world and doing these kinds of fairs enables us to you know to keep up with the art world but also to reach audiences that we don't doing the traditional kind of author tours and and bookshop events and that kind of thing oh yeah and that was one thing i was going to ask you about yeah london art book fair i guess to a degree it's slightly a misnomer we've got friends like jeremy leslie who've got the sort of magazine quarter and all the rest of it and you have books which are i suppose sort of musings on art meditations on art but they're not sort of art books as people might traditionally think of you know the big coffee table tomes but yeah it it feels like a really good fit do you think that's more to do with the themes is that to do with an approach is it to do with a a sort of an aesthetic sensibility what what, why does it seem so well aligned i think we managed to con everyone into thinking that we were sort of art publishers in the beginning because of the design because we have this very spare minimalist continental european inspired book design which you don't really see with other trade publishers or independent publishers as i said before yeah we do have a kind of a foot in the art world in that we publish artists like ed atkins one of our authors dan fox was the editor of freeze magazine for a long time and we're about to publish his second book a few of our writers are art critics people like ben lerner writes novels and, and art criticism yeah, there's a kind of fit in that we, we, we straddle those worlds. But I think also it's been the case for a long time that the most interesting and productive writing and, I mean, kind of experimental-leaning writing has been housed in, in the art world, in, in gallery spaces, in, in fairs, whatever. So there's been, yeah, there's been a lot of interest from that world from the beginning. So it is, yeah, it's a fit, I guess. We're lucky to have that opportunity. I think it also stems from the White Review, which is the magazine that I set up almost nine years ago now which was always contemporary art and literature and the two have always kind of or Fitzgerald kind of sprung out of out of the white review so there was always this element of being known as someone who could do both that was Jacques Testard, uh, founder and editor of Fitzcarraud. He's a man, Faye, as well, who knows a thing or two about uh, magazines, of course, The White Review, which I think he mentioned there. Uh, there were a few copies of that knocking around so as well. He's a books and magazine person. You see? In, in the Venn diagram. <laughs> exactly. There's a rich area in the middle. Uh, let's uh, wrap up the show, though, Fernando, with another chat that you had. Um, I know you and I had talked before about the archive of modern conflict. Really interesting, uh, kind of an interesting idea to sort of even get your head around. Um, but you caught up with someone who, well, is better placed than most to explain more about it. It is Emma Capps, the editor and writer of Archive of Modern Conflict. So it's been going for several decades now, and without a specific purview or remit, it's just been developing very organically. And now we have something like the count is very approximate, but something like five million, eight million, who knows, photographs and objects, yeah, it's material that sort of dates from prehistory to the present and it is extremely varied. So there's no particular focus at the archive, but everything in its collection makes some kind of sense together. There's like a world of the archive and all the material in the archive fits into that. And how do you guys source the material? Do people donate or do do you guys go around the world, you know, looking for interesting things, interesting material? There's a lot of sourcing involved, but the actual process of sourcing takes so many different forms that it's sort of hard to describe. So it might mean spending two months in Bogota 
walking the streets, meeting people, coming across interesting collections that way. Or it could be something online, someone stumbles across something, and then suddenly that's, that becomes another area of interest of the archive and it's folded into the collection. Well, but let's look what you guys have in print as well, which is quite interesting. And, you know, showing all this amazing material that you guys have. Show starts, you have a journal here, which I, I thought was quite interesting. So how does your work, I mean, the journal, how, how often is it published, for example? It's been years, is that correct? Years since the last one was published. And now we have a new issue. We publish photo books and also have a journal. And we've been doing that uh, for quite some time now, for over a decade. The journal presents certain parts of the collection and there's no consistent editor. It's edited by someone different at the archive each time. Emma Capps uh, from the Archive of Modern Conflict wrapping up this very special edition of the programme. Fernando, I should pass on my thanks uh, to you, of course, for sort of uh, riding along for our stack away day. Uh, we should thank the programme's editors, George McDonough and Cassie Galpin. And I suppose we should grudgingly thank our ever-eager colleague, uh, Kieran Banerjee, of course, who uh, set up our little studio outpost at the Whitechapel Gallery. And Faye, uh, the team there, what a warm welcome we received. And we should thank all of them as well. Absolutely. Lucy, Anna, thank you so much and uh, for arranging all these great guests as well. That was a programme we broadcast in September live from the London Art Book Fair. Midori House will be back in its usual form with special guests talking about the big and some small issues from around the world of geopolitics at the same time tomorrow. Do join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye.